So hopefully by now you've had a chance to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Over the past couple of weeks, we had taken some time off uh, from the book of Colossians. Pastor Dan finished uh, a week or two before Christmas with uh, Colossians chapter 2, talking about legalism and how it's crept its way into the church. Then we took a couple of weeks off for the holidays to, uh, Pastor Dan, want to share a couple of things that were on his heart. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to wrap up Colossians before heading into our next book study which is the Gospel of Matthew, starting on January 29th. It's going to be a really good study. Matthew is my favorite gospel, um, so you guys should be there and enjoy it too. But before we do that, before we jump into the text today, I wanted to go over a couple quick refreshers as to why the book of Colossians exists, what Paul was writing about when he wrote this letter to the church in Colossae. You see, he never actually visited this church. If we put up the map here, I'm going to show you a couple of quick things. When he was on his missionary journeys, Paul would travel through what is now Southern Europe, uh, through the Middle East, and he was planting churches, meeting people along the way. And on the left side of your map, you see the city of Ephesus. It's a, a waterfront town. It's a major port city, a lot of um, economy and commerce taking place there. When he was there, he met two guys, Epaphras and Philemon. And those guys he invested in, and they ended up leaving Ephesus to go to Colossae, to plant this church. And so throughout the years, as with most churches, they start to face issues, some outside uh, things start creeping into the church, some different teachings start creeping their way in. And so Epaphras leaves Colossae and goes and visits Paul, who at this time is actually in prison in Rome. And he writes this letter saying, here's all the issues and here's how you correct these issues. Hence, we have the letter or the book of Colossians. And so Paul is addressing four major things that are creeping into the church. The first thing we see, as I just mentioned, is legalism. The fact that you know Jesus is good, but there are other rules that we need to add to Jesus in order to really be a successful Christian. The second thing he's fighting against is what's called Gnosticism. The Gnostics were a group of people that believed they were kind of privy to a higher level of knowledge. You could achieve that through much meditation and prayer and, and seeking these things, and it's all about knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. The more you know, you can't know enough, and you have this heightened, elevated sense of knowledge. So Jesus is good, but you have to have all this other knowledge with it. The next thing that is fighting against is outside religions. You see the, the city of Colossae right there in what was called Asia, what is now Turkey, is right in the center of an area with, where you cross from what is now Europe and Asia, kind of cross right between there. So you have outside influences and other religions that really creep their way into this church. And he's saying, you know, it's not about other religions, it's about Jesus. But these other religions are saying, you know, Jesus is good, but we have other idols, there's other gods. You know, we can ask these gods for these things. And so he's fighting against that. And then the last thing he's really fighting against is philosophy. And the philosophers of the time, Greek is, Greece is not far from here, and the Greek philosophers would say, Jesus is okay, but you need to add these philosophies, you need to add these beliefs, and add these things, such as asceticism, which is basically the idea that you can't eat anything or do anything fun, and you're good to go. Okay, so he's saying, no, that's not what it's all about. He's like, at the end of the day, our faith is based in Jesus. Our life begins, our faith begins and ends with Jesus. All these outside influences want to say it's Jesus and this. Paul's saying, nope, it's just Jesus. For example, in Colossians chapter 2, on the top of your outline, verses 9 and 10, Paul says this. For in Christ, all of the fullness of the deity, so he takes time multiple times in Colossians to say Jesus is deity, Jesus is God, not just a human, not just a prophet, but Jesus is in fact God, lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been, underlined this, brought to fullness. You've been brought to fullness. Notice he doesn't say you've been brought 90% of the way there, 95% of the way there. It says you are brought to fullness. You are completed in Christ. He is the head over every power and authority. So Paul is letting us know that he is the authority above all 
and that our faith begins and ends with him. It's not adding to the gospel. It's not adding to Jesus. And so in Colossians chapter 1, Paul takes time to explain that Christ is preeminent overall. You see that in salvation. You see it in creation. You see it in the establishment of his church. Then in Colossians chapter 2, he goes through how to defend the preeminence of Christ, how to defend our faith against these outside influences, these philosophies, and these rules, and this legalism. And then in chapter 3, you're going to see him transition into the practical side of now what do we do with all this stuff that we were just told. So how do we apply this knowledge to our life? See, if there's one thing that Paul did in every letter, is he always started with correction, he started with instruction, and then he transitions from that and says, now that you know what you're supposed to do, here's how you do it. And so we always emphasize the application. See, we're really good at sitting here and listening and learning and having all this great knowledge, but what are you doing with it once we leave these four walls? How are you applying this knowledge with your neighbors, in your co- with your coworkers, in your workplace, in your families? How are you applying these things? And so Paul wants to emphasize the application of our faith. And so as we jump into today's text in Colossians chapter 3 with your pen in hand, we're not going to get very far before we stop. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 Paul starts with this. He says, therefore, I want you to underline that. We're going to stop right there. Skip Heisig, who's a pastor at Calvary in Albuquerque, says that there's a therefore in scripture. You need to find out what it's there for. So we're going to find out what it's there for. You see, in Colossians chapter 2, as I said, he's wrapping up his speech on legalism. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 through 23, he says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch? So if you are now dead to your past and you're now alive in Christ, why are we still living according to the world? The world wants to say, you have to do this, 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 and this. He's saying, no, Jesus is the answer. These are the guidebooks that we're supposed to live to. These are the rules that we should live, 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 at, live with as a follower of Christ. He says, if we have died to that, why are we still living according to the world? Then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, now that you have this knowledge, now that you have been died to your old self, now that you are living in your new life, you have died to the principles of this world, Here's what you do. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, underline this, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You see, as a believer, there's a clear division in your life. Paul, when he was writing the book of Colossians, was writing specifically to believers. And when he says there is a clear division in our life of when I was alive in sin and I was dead to Christ, and then I accept Christ in my life, I am now dead to sin and I'm alive in Christ. There's a clear division in my life of when my old self died, and I'm now alive in my new self. You see, although he's writing this letter to believers, there's a clear gospel thread all throughout this book, where he says, at one point we were alive to sin, but now we are alive in Christ. Once I give my life to Jesus, the old is dead, the new is alive. And on your outline, we're going to talk about the seven steps that Paul gives us in this passage of Scripture to a brand new you. So as we start a 2017, a new year, these are the steps that we need to take to make sure that Jesus is what's evident in our life as a follower of Jesus. But before we get into that, if you're in this room today and you say, I've not taken that step, I'm not giving my life to Christ, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today that's applicable to the believer. But all this applies to all of us in that the first step, number one, is seeking the eternal. Seek the eternal. The first step for all of us is giving our life to Jesus and starting this journey. After the service today, there's going to be prayer partners up front. I encourage you, if you've not taken that step, come up and talk to them about it. Pray with them and start this process. Seek the eternal is always step one in the process. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul put it this way. 
He says, and you are dead, underline that, in your trespasses and sins. The word death just means separation. So when I was living in sin, I was separated from Christ. There's a gap between me and God that cannot be bridged other than Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. He says, once I believe that, that gap is closed. I'm now brought into unity with Christ. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you are formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So I did everything I wanted to do in sin. I lived according to the lust of the flesh. I did whatever I wanted living in sin. But then in verse 4, it takes a drastic turn with two simple words. Verse 4 begins with this. It says, but God. But God. You see, I was living according to my flesh, but God. God chose to intervene in our lives. He chose to send his son to die for us so that we would have a chance at eternity with him. And he goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved, he loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions, even though I had no reason for him to do this, underline this, he made us alive. He made us alive. I was dead to Christ, living in my sin, but God intervened in his mercy and his love for us and made us alive. And I hope that if you leave here today, you leave here with that, that Jesus loved you so much that he gave his life, although we didn't deserve it. He gave his life for us and he made us alive. You see, baptism portrays this beautifully. The reason we are baptized, is a public profession of our faith. We are saying, I'm a believer in Christ. I want my church, my family, my friends to know it. And when you're lowered into the water, it says that your old life is buried. It's gone. It's dead. But you don't stay underwater. You come back up. And that represents your new life in Christ. So my old life, my life of sin has been buried. But my new life, I'm now alive in Christ. As I'm raised up from the water, I have a new life life. You see, Jesus, when he was resurrected from the dead, he didn't just stay in the tomb and dwell in his past, but it says that he left the tomb. He went out and he made a difference. He met with people. He impacted the lives of those around him. And that's what we are called to do as believers. As a representative of Jesus, we are called to go out and do stuff. Don't dwell on my past. Don't dwell with the world. Don't dwell with the sin, but keep my mind on things above. Seek what is above. In verses two through four, he lays this out. Underline this. He says, set your mind on the things above. Set your mind on the things above, a permanent fixture, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on earth. See, so many of us get caught in the trap that what's happening right now in my life is what matters most. But I can tell you that God has a greater plan for every single one of us and has nothing to do with where we're at right now. It has everything to do with the eternal prize. It says, keep your mind set on heaven. Keep your mind set on the things above. And that is what we live for, not the beginning. Earth is just the beginning for us. But there's an eternal place in heaven for every single one of us. There's a great lesson in scripture. If you study uh, the Israelites as they leave Egypt, it says that they cross the Red Sea. They're out in the wilderness. They're heading towards the promised land, this promise that God has for them. They get there and they send 12 spies out into the land. It says 10 of them go out and come back and report that there are these big giants in the land. How are we going to beat these fortified cities? There's no way we can do it. But two guys, Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, God made a promise. He said, this land is yours. You just have to go and take it. 
be obedient, listen to my words, go into the land and take the land, it's yours. You just have to go take it. But we know the story, it says that God punishes the Israelites because of their lack of faith. And for 40 years, they have to wander around in the wilderness. And as they wander around the wilderness for 40 years, it says that everybody over the age of 20, as they went to that land the first time, everybody over the age of 20 dies except for Joshua and Caleb. Those are the only two that are spared because of their faith. Now I want you to put yourselves in their shoes. For 40 years, these two guys had to wander around with a bunch of people that made a mistake. And they had to live the consequence of that decision. How happy would you be? Okay, all of us have been in that situation before where we live the consequence of somebody else's decision, somebody else's sin, and you're stuck in that situation. And for 40 years, they were wandering around the wilderness listening to these people complain because of their bad decision. 40 years. I have two kids, I have three kids, but two kids that are old enough to play with toys and leave stuff laying around the house. And so we have a rule that if I say clean up and they don't do it, I grab a trash bag, I start throwing everything in the trash bag, and we hide it for a while. All right? It's great, except for here's the issue. Madison, my five-year-old, you ask her to clean up, she goes and does it. Taylor, my four-year-old, all of a sudden, it's nap time. Here's all the reasons I can't do it. There's just too many toys out there, first of all. It's normally the number one go-to. Um, so I just start grabbing the trash bag and throwing the toys away. And then I get from Madison the reasons why that's not fair, because I, did, I was cleaning up the toys. She was the one that made the mess. And so you go back and forth with this bickering. It's the same thing they went through on a much grander scale in that they were living the consequences of everybody else. They had to suffer through that for 40 years. How did they do that? It's because their eyes were not on what was happening around them. It was on the prize that God had for them. God said, I have a great plan for you. I have a promised land for you that is yours when you go and take it. And they could have dwelled on what was going on around them. They could have complained. They could have argued. But instead he says, you know what? God has a great plan for us. We are going to take this land. It is the promise that he has for us. And I'm going to set my mind on what is above. I'm going to set my mind on the future. I'm not going to dwell on the past. And I'm convinced that the people that are happiest in life around us today are not the ones that are saying, I'm going to live in the misery of the situation I'm stuck in right now. There's some of us sitting in this room right now that are going through some very tough situations, financially, relationships, illness, but this is only the beginning of our story. God has a greater plan for us. And we are to set our minds on the things that are above. Set your mind on the things above. Now the adverse of that, number two, the second thing on our, applica- on our outline is stop seeking the temporary. Stop seeking the temporary. There are a lot of us that tend to dwell in our past. But Paul makes it very clear in this writing and other books that we are to die to the past and move on alive in Christ. We want to live in our past sins. We want to live in our past mistakes. We want to live in our past addictions, and that becomes what defines us. But he says, look, your old life, those old things are dead. You are now alive in Christ. You have a new life. You are perfected. You are made full because of the cross. And that's what matters, not my past. On your outline, I put a practical application there, and it says this. My past is a guidepost, not a hitching post. My past is a guidepost. It is not a hitching post. I do not hitch my life to my past. That is not what defines me. I use that as a guide to make corrections in the future, and I keep my eyes on what's ahead. I look towards Jesus, and I move forward. I learn from my mistakes, and I move forward. I don't dwell in the past. I am dead to sin, and I'm alive in Christ. 
So stop seeking the temporary. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul again then begins this with a therefore, transitioning from now that we have this, based upon what God has done for me in the, in the past, knowing what he has for me in the future and what he's doing in my life in the present, here's how I should live. And verse five says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. I want you to underline that. So we're going to see dead and alive a lot through this passage today. The word dead is the Greek word nekrao, which means to put to death, to slay, to deprive of power, or to destroy. So completely eliminate this from my life. Not tuck it away and bring it back out later, but completely get rid of it out of my life. <clears throat> your earthly body is dead to immorality, to impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the underlined old self with its evil practices. So once you have died to sin, you have died to these things. He says, no longer live in those you have put, a, put aside the old self and its evil practices. You are not to live this way. Put these sins away. This all seems pretty self-explanatory. Don't lie. You know, don't say bad things. Don't be immoral. Don't be greedy. They're all pretty simple tasks. There's a reason that Paul wrote that in this letter and every other epistle that he wrote, he lists these things. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And the reason is it was pervasive amongst the people of those days that these were big issues that were facing them. But guess what? 2,000 years later, we still struggle with these same issues. And the Holy Spirit draws us to things over and over again in Scripture. When something is repeated and repeated and repeated, there's a reason. It's because we need to get this. We need to know this. We need to apply these things. And Paul says, don't do these things. He starts to list out these sins. On your outline, I put a little self-check right there. It says, I blank. I want you to write your name there. I'm committed to working on blank. You see, all of us have something to work on. All of us have something to work on. And so today we're going to make a commitment to begin working on that. But here's the deal. It's not just a commitment to yourself. You need to tell somebody, I need to work on this. Find somebody that will hold you accountable, that will raise you up, that will encourage you in your faith and your walk with Jesus and say, I'm going to walk along beside you with this. And we're going to beat this. We're going to get through it. You see, Paul starts listing out these sins in verse 5. He starts with sensual sins. He says, eliminate the sexual sin from our life, the immorality, the impurity, and the passions that, pervade, that, that are all in our mind. Eliminate evil desires. Don't give evil a foothold in your life. Don't let it creep in. He says, eliminate greed. Is money your God? Is your strive for that paycheck, the nice house, the, the cars, is that what guides your life? Or is it Jesus? In verse 8, he then transitions from the sensual to social sins. He says, eliminate anger, wrath, malice. These are, are sins that are habitual. Are you habitually angry? You're always yelling. You're always screaming. When somebody cuts you off, is your reaction, you know, let it slide? Or is it, you know, sometimes things fly out of your mouth that probably shouldn't fly out of your mouth? I can tell you that I've struggled with that one. I'll be open and honest with you. They're, my Kids are the greatest source of accountability you could ever have. If you have kids, you get what I'm saying, right? My five-year-old was in the car with me. Um, this was a couple, of, I guess probably a year or two ago. And uh, we were actually out here. Uh, we left church and we were heading home and somebody cut me off. And I've got my daughter in my car. So I'm very protective of my daughter. So when he did that, almost drove me off the road. Something came out of my mouth that I'm not very proud of. And so we're driving down the road. And like two minutes later, I hear from the back seat, Daddy, what does this mean? <laughs> you want to talk about a gut check moment? Right there, 
a gut check moment? Are those habitual acts in your life? What do you need to work on? It says eliminate slander. Are you an encourager or are you a gossip? Do you build people up or do you tear people down? And let me tell you, one way that we like to gossip without gossiping is, you know, the whole prayer request gossip, you know, when we go and say, well, let me tell you about Susie. She is struggling with this sin and this sin. We need to pray for Susie because she's struggling with these things. Guess what? That's gossip. It's gossip. In your heart, you know what you are doing. Eliminate gossip from our speech. And he says, eliminate abusive speech. How is your language? You're joking. In Colossians 4, 6, Paul says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Salt is always a sign of purity. Let your speech be pure. And then he closes it off by saying, eliminate lies. Any of you guys ever lied before? I know I have. We are born with that ability. You know, my kids, they don't have to be told lie. You know, when they steal the cookie out of the cookie jar and they have it all over their face, you say, do you eat the cookie? And they say, no. You know, you don't have to teach them that. They just, it's their natural ability to lie. In Psalm 58, it says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. From birth, we are given that natural ability to sin and make mistakes. But what Paul is saying is those sins represent an old life, my old self, not my new life in Christ. He says, these are the ways that we used to live. Because we used to live this way, here's now how we are supposed to live. Number three on your outline is this, put on your new self. The third step to a brand new you is put on your new self. Paul continues in chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. He says, and have underlined this, put on the new self who is underlined being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which this is no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. And underline this, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. You see, he begins bridging the gap between our old life and he says, put on your new life. And he's about to go into, here's what that will look like as well. But the words put on is literally translated to what you would do with your clothes. And when he says, put on your new life, he's saying, you take off your old, you throw it away, and you put on your new life. And that is a once and for all permanent action. That moment of salvation, when I give my life to Christ, I am born again. I have a new life in Christ. And my old life is dead. I'm now living seeking on what's above, living the life that he has called me to live. And my old self has taken off. In Galatians chapter three, he says this, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. I'm literally wearing Christ with me everywhere I go. There's neither Jew nor Greek, free man or slave, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he says, put on your new self who is being renewed. This is a renewal in which there's no distinction. So he talks about putting on the new man, this once and for all action. Then he goes into this idea of being renewed. And that's the idea that we are sanctified. We're going through the sanctification process. It's this big fancy word that means you are being made holy. You're being made like Christ. You see, the moment I am saved, it's a once and for all action of putting on Jesus. And from that moment forward, I'm being made holy. I'm being made like Christ. God is at work in our lives to make us better. It's not an instantaneous jump to, I'm no longer going to do any of these sins. I'm going to move on and I'm perfect from here out. It's a constant process in our lives of perfecting and being like Christ. It is a renewal process. The word renewal there is a present participle, which means it's taking place now actively in our lives from now until the day Jesus comes back and calls us home. And so he goes on in, in the rest of this chapter and he explains what that process looks like. Number four, step four in your outline is pursue holiness. 
pursue holiness. He says, you are dead to sin, you are dead to these old things, and here's what it looks like going forward. But in Romans 6, and 23, he says, being now having been, underlined, freed from sin, since sin is no longer what controls your life, and underlined, enslaved to God. I'm now tied to God. I'm now enslaved in him. I'm now a representative of him. I'm now wearing Christ in my life. You derive your benefit, underlined, resulting in sanctification. God's now at work actively in my life to make me holy. And the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So he said, God is at work actively in your life right now. Once you make that once and for all decision to give your life to Christ, there's a work that's taking place in our lives. So again, with your self-check, I, TJ, am committed to working on what? He gives us a list of things that we should be actively showing in our lives. You see, there was a list of vices that we struggled with, but he said, here are the virtues that we now replace those with. Starting in verse 12, he says this, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, catch this one, patience, catch this one, bearing with one another. A lot of you guys can't put up with a person sitting next to you, let alone one another. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Not just forgiving, I want you to hear this part too. Whosoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Jesus gave his life for me, and he gave his life for you. And he says, just as also Jesus forgives us, we should forgive others. I know there are people sitting in here right now that are holding a grudge, that haven't forgiven, that haven't taken that step. And he says, look, this is temporary. Don't dwell on what's here. Dwell on the future. Let this go. Forgive as I forgave you. And then he goes on in verse 14, and this sums it all up. I want you to underline the first part of this sentence. He says this, Beyond all of these, he said, get those, but beyond all of that, beyond all these things, put on love. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. He says, all this stuff is incredibly important, but it can be summed up in one word, and that's love. He's like, if you get that right, if you get the love for each other right, the love for your neighbor, the love for your spouse, the love for your family, the love for those around you, the love for your enemy, if you get that right, everything else falls into place. He says, beyond all these, put on love. He said, that is the unifying quality that binds us all together is love, no matter what. And we're not talking about love that's conditional based upon I'll love you if you do this or I'll love you when you give me this. It is unconditional love. You can do nothing to separate me from Christ's love. That's the love that we are to have for each other, that agape love that love that's not conditional. When Jesus was asked what the most important commandment is, he says, love the Lord that God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first thing we need to get right is love God. And they said, what's the second greatest commandment? He says this, love your neighbor as yourself. He's like, get that right. Love God, love those around us, and that's the unifying quality that brings all these other things into play. How are we doing with loving our neighbor, with loving our enemy, loving those people that are really hard to love in our life? He says, love above all. So as Paul begins to round up this teaching in the first part of chapter three, he talks about these qualities that should be evident in our life. When we put on Christ, these are the things that should be evident in my life. And then he then points us to our benchmark. He says, as a Christian, we are to strive to be like Christ. And there are three specific ways he outlines for us in the next few verses. So step five, the fifth thing that we need to do is no peace. No peace. 
In verse 15, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule, underline that, in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. The word rule there literally translates to umpire. He's saying, let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your heart. When you're faced with a tough situation, when you're faced with a tough decision, he's like, let the peace of Christ be the umpire. Let the peace of Christ, let the spirit work in you and let it be the judge. When you're facing that decision, you say, am I supposed to do this? What happens inside of you? Are you trying to justify why that's a great idea? Or does God give you peace and say, yes, go this way? There's a book written by Andy Stanley. He's a pastor in Atlanta, and it's called The Best Question Ever. I'm going to spoil it for you. The Best Question Ever, which it gets to like late in the book. I'll save you 20 bucks. You're welcome. <laughs> is, is this the wise thing to do? Is this the wise thing to do? You see, something happens in our body when we ask ourselves, is this the wise thing to do? You immediately have a peace and say, yes, this is the wise thing to do. Or a lot of times you start playing the justification game in your mind. You start justifying why you think it's the wise thing to do. Should I marry this person? Yeah, you know, I know it's tough now, but it will only get better. You know, should I buy this house? Yeah, I know I shouldn't go into debt, but, you know, it's a nice house and I kind of like it and here's all the reasons I should do it. He says, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. Let the peace of Christ drive your decision-making. If you have peace in Christ, then you have peace to make that decision. But he says, look, beware. There is false peace. You can be at peace with yourself so you think. You can justify it pretty easily. A lot of us sitting in here made bad decisions because we've justified that in our mind, that why that's okay. There's this guy in the Bible, his name's Jonah. Most of you guys have heard of him before. And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to share uh, my love for them, but they need to repent and turn from their sin and turn to God. And Jonah says, thanks, but no thanks. And he flat out disobeys God. He runs the other direction. He hops on a boat and tries to get as far away from there as possible. And it says that a storm comes and starts rocking the boat. And it says Jonah is asleep. What shows me one thing, that he had peace in his heart that he had made the right decision. You see, if you've ever made a bad decision, a lot of times you toss and turn all night because you know it's not the right decision. But it says Jonah was able to go and fall asleep. He had a false peace in his heart that what he had done was really the right thing. and It was what was best for him. But the second place that we look for peace is not in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. What are your friends saying? What is your parents saying? What are those around you, the counsel that you have in your life? What are they saying? How are they reacting to this? You see, God sent a storm. And the only way that it was calmed is when he said, throw me in the sea, the sea will be calmed. And then he went to Nineveh and he followed God and what God wanted him to do. So he had a false peace in his heart. So there will be peace in your heart, but there will also be peace in those around you. We have to know the peace of Christ. We have to have that and let peace be our umpire. When you're facing a tough decision, and many of you are today, pray for that peace, pray for that wisdom, and seek the wisdom of those around you. Are they at peace with that decision as well? Number six, the next thing that he says is know God's word. Know God's word. And this is so important for us. In verse 16, it says, let the word of Christ, underline this, richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, underline singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When it says, let the word of God richly dwell within you, this isn't a casual statement of you should maybe read it every now and then, but it is let it consume your life. When you leave here on Sunday, are we spending time in God's word, getting to know God's word, or are we kind of just putting it away until next Sunday when we brush it off and bring God's word with us and study it again? 
Let it consume your life. It should consume our speech. It should consume our actions. It should be what we fill our life with. We should let it consume who we are. You see, Paul's concerned about the minimizing of God's word in the church. And he says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's a young pastor that he had raised up. And he encourages him with this. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. In verse 2, he says, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with great patience and instruction. He says, teach the word, Timothy. Teach the word. And he goes on to warn him, and he says, for the time will come when they underline will not endure sound doctrine. They don't want anything to do with truth. They want to do with whatever they want. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in the accordance to their own desires. And will underline this, turn away their ears to the truth, and underline will turn aside to myths. So there's a reason that Paul spends a couple of chapters saying, here's what we're up against. You have outside influences coming into your church, and you cannot defend against them if you don't know your Bible. He says the first thing we have to do, our front line of defense, is knowing God's word. You have to know what we believe. You have to know why we believe it. If we don't know God's word, we can't defend against outside influence because we don't know any better. But he says, let it dwell in your life. Let it consume you. And I find it interesting that when we do groups here, the ones that tend to be, you know, let's dive into the Bible are the ones that are much less attended. People don't want to study the Bible. They don't want to get in deep into what God says. But I encourage you guys, let it dwell in your life richly. Let it consume your life. Let it consume your decision-making. Because we live in a time where people don't want anything to do with the Bible. We live in a time where more than ever, those outside influences are consuming our church. You see, people don't want to face the truth. The truth offends me, and so I don't want that. So I'm going to sprinkle a couple verses into what I believe. We don't want to stand up for the truth. We don't want to hear the truth. And so we start saying, I believe 98% of the Bible, but the other 2% I just can't get on board with. At Calvary, we believe in teaching God's word, and that will never change. Pastor Dan started this church 20 years ago. God called him up here and said, I'm going to teach the Bible. That's what I'm called to do. Our mission statement here is very simple. We are called to help people grow in their faith in Jesus Christ through the teaching of God's word. And it's simple. But that's what we are about, and that will never change. We're just going to teach the Bible. We're going to preach the word, as, as Paul said to Timothy. Preach the word, and let it rich dwelly among you. The second part of that verse, he goes on and says, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. A quick practical application right on your outline there is when we are reminded what Jesus did for us, our natural response is worship. Our natural response is worship. See, before I come up here, we sang this song, says, I'm no longer slaves to fear, but I'm now a child of God. And I hope that when you sang that, that that was your honest prayer and your honest belief, that I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm no longer a slave to death. I'm no longer a slave to sin because Jesus came and he made me alive. I am now a child of God, and that is what defines us moving forward. That is what defines me as a follower of Christ. And we can't help but sing and celebrate that fact. When we dwell upon the fact that Jesus gave his life for me, we should celebrate. We should sing. It says in 2 Samuel that David danced in his underwear because he was in the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant coming back. I'm not encouraging you guys to do that here. But he was brought to a place where he could not control himself because he was so happy. And then lastly, on your outline, step seven. 
is identify yourself with Jesus. Identify yourself with Jesus. Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You see, the word Christian literally means little Christ. You are a little Christ. You are representing Jesus in all you do. You bear his name in all that you do. People are watching, waiting for you to make a mistake. Don't be a hypocrite. We all have those friends that look and say Christians are all hypocrites. Are you bearing the name of Jesus? Names were so important in the biblical days that it says that Jesus changed Peter's name from Simon to Peter because he was speaking something into his life. And that name meant something. Peter means rock. He says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. He's speaking that into his life. And he bore that name for the rest of his life, just as we as Christians, little Christ, bear the name of Jesus everywhere we go. We are to set our minds on him. We are to let his characteristics be a part of our life. We are to put our old self to death and live our new life in Christ. Remember those what would Jesus do bracelets that were really popular like 20 years ago. But the message behind them was simple. Before you make a decision, what would Jesus do? Ask yourself that. What would Jesus do? Remember, you're you're a representative of Christ everywhere you go. When people know you attend church, when they know you're a Christian, they know you're a follower of Jesus, they're going to watch, wait for you to slip up, will make mistakes. But remember that you bear the name of Jesus everywhere you go. And he wraps up and says, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Six times in Colossians, Paul reminds us to give thanks to Jesus. We should be thankful for what he has done for us. Some of us in here today, like I said, have not began this journey. My encouragement to you is don't leave here today without seeking that eternal, without giving your life to Christ. We're going to have prayer partners up front. Come and pray with them. Talk to them about what that means. But then for the rest of us that have already taken that step in our lives, God is calling us to do a work in our lives. He's calling us to study God's word. He's telling us to forget our past. He's telling us to live for him. I encourage you to find that person that's going to help you walk through this part of life, to walk through this season, to be perfected, to be made holy, to be made like Christ. Let us pray. Jesus, we're grateful for your word. Father, we're grateful that we get to be a part of what you're doing here, that you get to be a part of our lives. And God, I just pray that as we leave here today, that we will represent you well that we remember that we bear your name everywhere we go. We bear your message. We bear this gospel. And Father, we are called to share it with those around us. So may we represent you well. May you go before us and open up doors for those gospel conversations to take place this week. Father, may you indwell us richly with your spirit and with your word. God, and give us the right words to say when that time comes. Father, go before us this week and keep us safe. We are thankful for sending your son Jesus to die for us because that is why we are here today. That's why we have this hope. That's why we can put to death our old life. And Father, we have a new life through the cross and through the resurrection. And Jesus, we anxiously await your return one day. Go before us this week. Protect us and guide us in all that we do. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.